Well, the theme for the talk tonight is on sloth and torpor and restlessness. Did anybody experience either sleepiness or restlessness in the last sitting? Just raise your hands if you did. A touch of a little bit of both, huh? Okay. Um, So do you ever wonder what keeps us from experiencing the natural peacefulness of our lives, the natural peacefulness of our mind? It are its habits and hindrances that obscure that natural, peaceful radiance of mind. And these are a part of meditation, not just the natural, peaceful, quiet, calm, tranquil states, but also what obscures it is the meditation. So we should not conceive of meditation as just being the peace and the calm, but we need to, through meditation, make our peace with the obstacles and not get into a struggle or a war with them. In meditation, we look directly at the obstructions and the hindrances. Because if we do not recognize those obscurations, they tend to have too much power over us. But once we see them, once we know them, once we meet them with mindfulness, then we can work clearly and consciously with them. Hindrances are actually the stuff of what much early meditation practice is. They're not something that is eliminated by rejecting them or ignoring them. Instead, we turn the attention to see them so clearly so that we can work with them in in such a, a clear way that we're simply undisturbed by the arising of obscurations or hindrances so that we can know sleepiness and we can know restlessness with such clarity that they just don't disturb our meditation. So this talk focuses on these two hindrances, sloth and torpor and restlessness. Usually the hindrances are spoken of in a sequence of five, Desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness, and doubt. I'm just going to work with two of them. These are the two extremes of energetic imbalance. So when we work with the hindrances, we're not trying to get rid of them, but we're instead using an exploration of the hindrance to transform our relationship to the difficult aspects of life so that we don't just drift between these two extremes of being. On the one hand, restlessness, where we're busy with thought, there's a flurry and a worry in the mind. Or then dulling out when we finally stop all that busy running around. So first, I want to deal with the sloth and torpor. Sleepiness comes and goes in practice and in life. But the deeper meaning to sloth and torpor refers to a movement of mind that withdraws and contracts away from what is difficult. This is the difference between the need for sleep, the sleep that rejuvenates and refreshes the body and mind, and the weariness or the wish to just call it a day and throw in the towel. I want to look at a few causes for sloth and torpor. There are four causes that I'll address tonight. The first is exhaustion. And that exhaustion could be physical, mental, or emotional. It could be caused from overwork, from caretaking of infants at home, from intensive therapy or chronic pain. 
there are many causes for an actual fatigue and weariness of mind. Sometimes when we practice, what we realize and discover is that we're actually deeply fatigued. Underneath the busyness of our active lives, underneath the charge that sustains us from one activity to the next, is actually fatigue, exhaustion. When that stimulation and entertainment, when the drama of our active lives settles down, when we sit down to meditate, we may find that we just dull out, sleepy and weary, without the energy to even experience a single breath. Many of us live our lives at a pace that's driven by technological demands. And we may actually need to rest, to stop, to relax. The second cause of sloth and torpor is biochemical imbalance. And this may be through drugs. It may be through medications. It may be through food allergies, like a wheat allergy. It may be through protein deficiency, through dehydration. If we don't drink enough during the summer, we may get quite fatigued. Or it may be through the quick highs and crash down lows that come from the fluctuations of sugar and caffeine in our system. So we can bring sensitivity to the biochemical experience, to the environment that we live in, to the effects of nutrition and exercise upon our energy levels. Because these can have a profound effect on the energy of the mind, the ability to simply be awake rather than asleep. The third cause for sloth and torpor is an imbalance between concentration and energy. In meditation, we develop many factors of mind. Often, they're described as the seven factors of awakening. And some of them fall on the calming side, the tranquilizing side, such as tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And others are arousing or energizing factors, such as energy, joy, interest, and investigation. Mindfulness develops and balances these factors. But if they get out of balance in such a way that the concentration grows much faster than the interest or than the energy, then it's very common for the mind to dull out in an experience that's like sloth and torpor. The fourth cause for sloth and torpor is the possibility that we may have a way, a habit, a habitual way of relating to experiences that are slightly uncomfortable or neutral, that pulls us away from the experience. Because when there's sloth and torpor in the mind, we dull out. We don't notice things so clearly. So if there's some subtle pain in the body, we simply won't notice it so clearly if we dull out with sloth and torpor. So underneath the sloth and torpor, there may be resistance or aversion operating against perhaps a subtle, unpleasant experience. So we can rest and allow ourselves to get sufficient rest, but be careful not to use stress, which we so commonly speak about, 
as an excuse for not paying attention. When we're under stress, we may just want to shut down because we may not want to feel the unpleasant feelings of stress in the body and mind. Stress is dukkha, it is suffering, it is unpleasant. And if we habitually dull out in relationship to stress, that may simply be a response of aversion and not necessarily a need for rest. Sleepiness can be a way of simply avoiding what is occurring in the pleasant moment, a way that we may dull out and just hope that the difficulties go away. So sloth and torpor may be an unconscious strategy for shrinking away from the difficult or unpleasant experiences in our life because we withdraw our attention to avoid feeling what's unpleasant. Sometimes, though quite rarely, really quite rarely, it may be wise to avoid the difficult, to ease ourselves perhaps very slowly and very gently into facing what's difficult, a kind of very gentle approach to healing so that we don't allow ourselves to get overwhelmed by diving into what's difficult we can respect the possibility that sloth and torpor or sleepiness may be serving as a subconscious protection mechanism to keep us from being overwhelmed. (coughs) This is a possibility, and we can respect this possibility, but we can respect this in the context of knowing that this is a practice of awakening. It is not a practice of sleeping or a practice of relaxing, but a practice of awakening, of liberation and freedom. So when there is sleepiness, we can bring a stronger investigation to explore the sleepiness and how we relate to it. Look into why is it occurring, what are its causes, what is actually going on. This investigation to see what is actually going on increases the interest and sees what is actually preventing that awake quality of mind from being vibrantly present in our moment-to-moment experience. Often our lives are not always dominated by a dramatic experience that may be really exciting or really painful. We may not have most moments in a day of extreme joy or extreme pain. Actually, for most people, most moments of the day are relatively neutral, not extremely pleasant and not extremely unpleasant. These neutral objects neutral things in our experience, neutral things we perceive and notice, neutral sensations, neutral thoughts, are not so exciting and not so stimulating. If our experience is neutral, not so stimulating in that moment, we may have a habit to just snooze through those neutral moments, to just not notice them. We may feel bored rather than interested in what's quiet. 
interested in what's calm. We may be so accustomed to entertaining ourselves with the drama of our lives and our culture that we may actually find tranquility just a little boring. Sometimes we miss the moments of calmness and peace in our days simply because they're not so exciting. And we may not yet have learned or trained our minds to stay present with ourselves in the subtlety of experience, whether that experience is of calmness or of neutrality. When objects are more subtle for the degree of refinement of our awareness, our mind may become dull. For example... Say you're eating an apple. Everybody here has eaten an apple, right? Unless you're allergic to apples or hate them. For most people, it's a relatively simple and mundane experience to eat an apple. If we're not mindful for the eating of an apple, we may blame the apple for not being exciting or delicious enough. So we change the object. We think, well... Maybe a pineapple will be better, or maybe a guava, or a mango, or a tangerine, or perhaps a fig. We blame the apple for not exciting us and try to get something more satisfying to eat, something better. This kind of movement can lead to commercialism so that we're always trying to buy the next most exciting thing, get the next most exciting experience. But If we have not refined the attention and cultivated a clarity of attention, the next thing probably won't satisfy us either because we won't be present for it any more than we're present for that apple. The problem is not in the object. It's not in the apple. It's not in more neutral experiences. The challenge is in how are we relating to those experiences and are we awake for them. The desire to get ever more exciting experiences is an addiction that can lead to this ever-increasing desire for stimulation just to feel awake. In meditation practice, we go the reverse direction. We cultivate a more and more refined awareness so that we can be awake for subtler and subtler experiences rather than demand that experiences become grosser and more exciting. Many experiences in life are simply neutral. There is no problem with this. So how to work with sloth and torpor. The primary challenge with sloth and torpor is to notice it immediately, to get to know the tiredness before it sends us to bed. If we don't notice the tiredness, if we don't notice the sleepiness or the sloth and torpor, chances are we'll fall asleep before we notice that sloth and torpor has arisen. So the first challenge is to recognize it immediately. But how do we recognize it? What does it feel like? What does it feel like? How do you notice it when you're sleepy, sloth and torpor? 
I'd like to hear a few words that describe sloth and torpor. Heaviness around the eyes, yes. Slowness, yes. Ah, inability to find anything interesting. There's a kind of dullness of the, in the mind. Yeah, disinterest. I have a thought that is not of the day. Like, think about the day and I'll be into that. But if I have something that is just completely sort of away from that, then I know that I'm, I'm, I'm I call it dreaming. Ah, dreaming. Dreaming is very, very, yes, that that can often, sometimes that dreaming can be like a floating quality, kind of a lullaby to us, which takes us right into sleep. (laughs) What else does it feel like? In the body, in the mind? Heaviness in the limbs. Yes, you can feel it in the body sometimes. Does your posture change? Sometimes it goes closer to the ground and there's this nodding experience or the slouch. That heaviness is really um, experienced in the body. There can also be a fogginess in the mind or that um, inactive, sluggish quality. So it's important to know what sloth and torpor feels like so that when you recognize it, you know what to recognize. With mindfulness... We can stay connected to the experience, the experience of dreamy, dreamy, floaty qualities of mind, the experience of heaviness in the body, the experience of disinterest or inertness. We can stay connected with that experience as clearly as we can be connected with the sensations of a breath and use that clarity of connection to keep us from slipping into a dull relationship to the sleepiness, being seduced into sleeping. So we investigate and notice the characteristics of sleepiness rather than indulge in them. We can also try to increase the factor of energy so that our focus becomes clearer. We can actually ask ourselves a question. What's happening here? What's going on? What's actually happening? Oh, there's dullness, there's sleepiness, there's heaviness. We can make a kind of an energetic effort to pull ourselves out of that dreamy quality, of that floating quality, so that we don't just get seduced into the lullaby of sloth and torpor. We can also work very clearly with the mental noting. Mental noting, noting the sleepiness and noting the sensations of the breath, very often will resolve the sleepiness because right aim What noting often does is it directs the attention. It aims the mind to the object that is actually happening. This is classically considered the primary antidote or way of working with sloth and torpor is right aim. And the way that we use it in this practice is very often simply through noting. So if there's sloth and torpor in the mind, you may put a little extra energy into actually noting it. And be careful that the notes don't become like a lullaby. Oh, in, out. (laughs) But actually let the note, let the mind direct the, the note, aim the mind to the actual experience so that you're awake for just one breath. 
It may seem too much to be awake for the whole sitting, but awake for just this breath or in the walking, just this step, so that you actually meet the object of attention. We can also move the attention consciously from one object to another. That can sometimes invigorate the mind and enhance this aspect of right aim, wise aim. You can move the attention through the body in a kind of body scan, feeling the sensations at the top of the head, in the head, in the shoulders, in the arms, in the torso, in the legs, in the feet. So you systematically move the attention through the body. Sometimes that can create a kind of um, vibrant attention. Or you can use touch points where you feel the buttocks sitting on the seat. You feel the hands touching. Sometimes sloth and torpor can masquerade as compassion, taking care of ourselves with just another nap. Whenever the meditation gets difficult, this compassion may arise. Sloth and torpor, that mind of sloth and torpor, habitually relates from difficulties. It's one of the characteristics of sloth and torpor because we just don't want to arouse the energy to meet the difficult experience. But when we hold back our energy, when we withdraw from the forward edge of what we're capable of noticing, we're actually in a contracted state. And in a contracted state, there is no joy when we're pulling back from our own experience. It actually is not an experience of compassion. There's a story that I love to tell of um, a fellow who found a moth's cocoon. And he brought the cocoon of this moth home and watched it for days. And then eventually the moth started to break through the cocoon. And it started to tear tear through the, um, the fibers of the cocoon, little by little by little by little. And the man watched in happy anticipation to see the moth actually break through. And then at one point, it stopped completely. There was no movement in the cocoon. But there were still some fibers that were covering the opening that the moth had started to make. So wanting to help, the man took a little pair of scissors and carefully clipped open the cocoon and out popped a baby moth. But its wings were shriveled and its body was bloated. The moth lived out its days without ever flying because the process that pumps the blood from the body of the moth into the wings to enable it to fly is the process of the effort of breaking through that cocoon. That man, by, by, by trying to prevent, to save it from its effort, actually prevented it from flying. Too often we weaken ourselves by retreating from our own challenges rather than meeting our challenges as an invitation to grow in strength and in courage. So whenever you feel that energy of withdrawal, you can arouse a quality of ardency, of resolve. 
If you're in sitting meditation, it may be by opening the eyes, it may be by standing up, it may be by doing walking meditation. Sometimes at home when you have your daily practice, there's no law that says you have to sit for 45 minutes. Even if you have a commitment to a 45-minute practice each day or a 30-minute practice or however long you're doing, if you're feeling quite sleepy and slothful, the skillful thing to do some days may be to do the first 10 minutes of walking meditation and then sit down to try to arouse some energy. It may be to move faster or to move slower. One teacher suggests sitting with a knife under your chin. (laughs) Something to really encourage you (laughs) to not nod off. I'm not necessarily suggesting that for for people who are not very experienced in meditation. (laughs) But you can get the sense of the possibility of actually um, encouraging ourselves to be awake rather than just retreating from what's difficult. So in response to sloth and torpor, we arouse virya, its its courage, its energy, its courageous effort. The second hindrance I want to speak about is restlessness. Restlessness can be like a flurry in the mind, a restless agitation. It may take the form of worry or anxiety or even a physical feeling like ants crawling all over our bodies. We may be trying to do more, faster, hurrying, complaining, and feeling quite scattered as though we're just not able to be present with what is, but are constantly lurching forward to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, to what might be, what might happen. Restlessness is likened to the flapping of flags in a very strong wind, constantly moving, constantly agitated. It feels like we can't sit still, not mentally or physically. The mind just can't land and rest on the objects, on the breath, on the sensations. It's as though we just can't connect with the breath. We can't sustain our awareness on anything that is present. It's this this feeling of slipping off, slipping off, slipping off. Restlessness happens when there's an imbalance of energy or an imbalance between energy and concentration where there's more energy than the steadiness can hold. In that way, it's the opposite of sloth and torpor. Whereas the energetic imbalance in sloth and torpor is that there's too little energy. Whereas in restlessness, it's as though there's too much energy for the amount of concentration that has been developed. Sometimes restlessness is caused by an unpleasant experience that we're avoiding in a similar way as with sloth and torpor, where we just don't want to pay attention to the experience that's actually present, so we go into the future. But very often, it's simply an imbalance of energy, an excess of energy for the task at hand, or the field of perception is a little bit too narrow for the quantity and quality of effort that's available, of energy that's available. 
So how to work with restlessness? There are a few things to try in this balancing act between restlessness and sleepiness. With restlessness, as with sloth and torpor, the most important thing is to notice it, to recognize it as restlessness. That feel that physical quality, feel it in the body, that energetic quality, or the insecurity in the mind, the worry, the flurry of mind, the emotional agitation. Restlessness very often manifests in the mind, not just in the body. The psychological forms of restlessness can include trying to find security in future outcomes, lurching forward into the future, obsessive planning, worrying, rehearsing. Perhaps we rehearse conversations over and over and over again in the mind. This is restlessness. Go, or we may go into the past, um, recycling, remembering again and again and again what already happened and what might be the future result of this or what might be another future result or another future result or another future result. But worry is not preparation. Worry is just restlessness. It's just worry. We may find ourselves sitting in meditation planning the insights we're going to have when we're sitting in meditation at the next day long, completely oblivious to the experience of actually sitting in meditation now. Restlessness can also take the form of looking to the past. Sometimes the mind may get kind of in a hook or a loop and be be replaying a kind of um, moral inventory of all of our past actions judging ourselves. It may manifest through guilt or through an obsessive replaying of all the various terrible things that we have done. When restlessness arises, the first approach is to be mindful of it, to recognize the restlessness, because the mindfulness may not be lost. We may still be able to note Restlessness, restlessness, restlessness. Oh, this is what's happening. Agitation, tingling, worry. We can note the restlessness itself, taking the restlessness as our object for the meditation and use the mental noting to get to know restlessness as a form of energy, as an experience in the present moment. So we investigate what is this experience like? Can we allow ourselves to have the experience of restlessness and to learn about it, to explore it? How does it feel in the body? Oh, it feels like I can't sit. Well, what does that feel like? We can immerse ourselves in the sensory feeling of restlessness to feel the changes of heat and cold, the tingles, the pressures. We can settle in to a present moment experience of restlessness and perhaps harness that energy because restlessness is just chock full of energy. We can harness it and channel it into mindfulness practice, into an an experience of awakening rather than just allow it to dissipate simply because it's uncomfortable. 
how does restlessness feel in the mind? Very often it feels like the mind just doesn't land on the object. It's important to notice what that experience is like and what gave rise to it. Is there doubt under the under the restlessness? Is there aversion? Is there something that we're avoiding that we're not wanting to experience? If we're able to note the restlessness, notice what happens to it. Nothing stays the same. Notice how it changes as we note it. With restlessness, we may also adjust the field of perception because restlessness, because it has so much energy, it may just need a broader container, a bigger um, field. It's as though you're giving a cow a bigger pasture. So you may want to um, open to hearing, experiencing sounds, rather than just stay focused on the breath. The danger of this approach of giving the cow a bigger pasture is that it's easy with the energy of restlessness to just slip off into trains of obsessive thought. So you have to keep a watch for that. But basically with restlessness, what we need to do is strengthen the factor of concentration so that the concentration is strong enough to hold that energy. So there are five ways I want to suggest for working with restlessness. And basically all of them are ways of strengthening the concentration. The first is to actually hold on to the breath, to make the resolve and the commitment to again and again return to the breath, again and again feel the sensations of the breath. This intentionality strengthens concentration. Sometimes just returning again and again and again and again, 5,000 times in one sitting, trains the mind and overcomes the restlessness. It increases the concentration and the mindfulness, and the restlessness in turn diminishes. We may return 5,000 times, but if the practice is understood as a mind training, not as an attempt to attain some kind of reified, perfect state right now, then we may be more willing to just begin again and return again and begin again and return again. So that's the first approach, to really bring the mind back every single time. The second approach is to make the mind wide enough and open enough to hold the energy. It may be by opening to the experience of hearing sounds arising and passing so that the attention is vast and spacious. It may be instead of just feeling the breath at the nostrils or the abdomen that we feel the full breath and allow a little release on the exhale. So we use the breath to calm the mind. The third way may be by channeling that resource of energy into stillness through a commitment or a vow of a resolve of stillness. So we may, if we're feeling quite courageous, decide we are just not going to move because the energy of restlessness wants to move. So we may just say, okay, I'm going to face it this time. 
for the next 10 minutes or 5 minutes, I am not going to move. I'm going to feel this restlessness. Let it burn through me and know it. We may restrain the senses, really keep the mind from the eyes from looking around so that we actually gather in, channel and ground that energy in a very directive way. The fourth way is what I very often do when I experience restlessness. And that is to increase the number of objects that I note, to literally give my mind more to do, to use that energy, to harness it and put it to work into the practice. I use touch points to increase the objects. So I would note in and out. And whereas normally, I think in the practice that, we, that, that you're doing here, it's in and out, in and out, in and out. If there's an imbalance of energy, what I will do is in and out, then hearing and touching, in, out. Hearing, touching, in, out. Hearing and touching. So I move the attention, connecting between these four objects. When the restlessness is, when restlessness is present, it's important to connect steadily and deeply and to not let the, the um, uh, notes, the labels become like a mantra, but to really use them as pointers to ground our awareness in the present experience. And I find these four notes to balance my energy very well. The hearing is vast, the touching is grounding, and the in and out are both steady and precise. So I hope this gives you something to play with. But a lot of meditation is really inner exploration and experimentation. So I hope you'll enjoy it. The fifth way I wanted to introduce is walking meditation. And that's to simply feel the body in the activity of walking. Because walking meditation is a natural way of balancing any of the energy factors, whether it's on the slothful side or on the restlessness side. Walking focuses the energy in a very steady way, one step at a time. So it develops the, the tranquilizing, calming concentration factors, and there's a kind of relief that comes in pacing. But it's also done with the eyes open, with some movement in the body, alert to our surroundings. So it also develops the arousing factors. It's a natural balancing practice. So you may wonder in this movement between sloth and torpor and restlessness, where is the freedom beyond the duality of balancing factors of energy? The Buddha taught us that the nature of mind is luminous, radiant, and pure, but obscured by visiting defilements. There is a purity of mind, a natural purity. Radiance is not understood as a shining white light coming down from the heavens. It's understood as a clear quality of knowing, free of grasping, free of distortion. The forces that obscure that radiant, luminous quality of mind, that clear knowing, include sloth and torpor and restlessness among the five hindrances. 
those hindrances being desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. These are deeply habituated tendencies of mind. They're challenges that we have today, no different than the students of the Buddha had 2,600 years ago. We may sometimes notice that hindrances function together, fueling each other in what we might recognize as a multiple hindrance attack. If one of the hindrances is not seen clearly when it arises, the mindfulness momentarily diminishes. And when the mindfulness diminishes, it's as though there's an opportunity for other hindrances to come into play, to leap into experience. But no hindrance can withstand the steady eye of mindfulness. The trick, though, is to be aware and mindful of the hindrance without that mindfulness being influenced by aversion, doubt, or grasping. It's a knowing of the painful state of the hindrance with an open-hearted, interested attention. The quality of mindfulness is non-judging, non-interfering. Through mindfulness, we can bring a friendly relationship to life, opening to our experience in the present moment just as it is. Mindfulness accepts whatever is occurring. It doesn't fuel the hindrances, nor does it smash the hindrances. We see them come and we see them go, so that these mind states of sloth and torpor and restlessness are not a problem if we are not disturbed by them. Take a few minutes for questions, comments, please. Well, um, no, what we do, oh, actually, I'll guide that meditation for the last 10 minutes, um, but, but I'll just explain it now. Um, it's one technique that I personally have found useful. Do you use the in and out or the rising and falling when you do the meditation? You know, this. Uh, yeah. Yes, this this sounds qu- this sounds quite similar. Um, what I would be doing, um, just I'll, I'll describe the technique that I use is um, I use the rhythm of the breath and I use the mental noting. I really, when there's restlessness, I really use the mental noting, or with sloth and torpor, in feeling the in breath, out hearing, and then I open the awareness to experience the sounds arising, passing, and then that's for the length of, a, of an in-breath, and then touching. And I feel, usually I like the hands touching, 
because there's almost always some heat or something there. Um, or um, you might use the, the buttocks touching or if there's a, or the feet touching the floor. But you use some physical sensation if you're really quiet and you just want to use the, the, the lips touching or the eyes touching closed. Those are more subtle. But then you ground, the, the physical grounds you in something that's in the body right here and um, takes the mind away from the drifting quality. So I use in, out, hearing, touching, in, out, hearing, touching, and so that I actually move the attention from one object to the next. Um, it complicates it because instead of using in, out, which are two objects, you're then using four. So if you're quite new to meditation, you might not want to dive into that until maybe you've been doing meditation for a few months and feel kind of stable with it. But it's well worth playing with because then you can, um, you can really ground yourself in the body, have the vastness of hearing, and then the basic in-out experience. I usually keep it up for five or ten minutes until there's some balance and steadiness, and then I just go back to the regular practice. You know, it depends. Um, you'll notice when the restlessness diminishes and you feel more balanced, and then all of a sudden it feels like, God, there's a lot of objects going on, four is too many, and then you, you move back to the two. It's, it's just a, one of many skillful ways of connecting and grounding. What do you notice is the difference? Um, and I wanted to know if you were kind of equating them. In other words, when you asked um, after the meditation, then you might experience sleepiness or restlessness. I, I didn't raise my hand because that's not what it felt like to me, but my mind certainly wasn't steadily concentrated. Well, thoughts arise. If mind wandering is understood as being momentarily um, caught um, momentarily thinking about something and then come back and then thinking about something and then come back and then thinking about something and come back. And there's sort of a, there's a steadiness to it. It's just one more object that is arising in the, in the experience. It happens to be a mental object. We may not have been mindful of it in the first second, but we're mindful of it pretty soon and then we come back. I wouldn't call that restlessness. But if there's a real preoccupation patient, like a sense of worry and obsession, like we're caught on a kind of loop, there may be, it may be restlessness taking a mental form. Even if it doesn't feel especially energetic, it would Obs- Well, notice the difference between, because thoughts arise in meditation, the mind wanders, we come back, that isn't necessarily restlessness. But if you're caught by obsessive planning, Chances are there's something going on there that's um, that there's a insecurity or and, and, and a movement of restlessness, and you can work with it in the same way you would work with restlessness. It's more like a fantasizing plan. That sounds pretty. Obs- I mean, <laughs> if it's fantasy, it's it's like future. Almost all planning and fantasy. It's yeah. the same movement of mind. We're planning all kinds of possibilities. Right. Um, and um, sometimes there's a sense of security because um, we can try and grasp a hold of what will happen when actually in reality we don't know what's going to happen. And so it, it kind of pushes us forward. It's more like a clinging thing. Well, yeah. yeah. You, don't, um, you don't have to call it restlessness. If it doesn't feel like it's restlessness, then... Um, but just just know that restlessness isn't necessarily 
a physical experience, it may manifest mentally, emotionally. It may man- manifest as a, as a ma- in the mind rather than just in the body. Because some people think that restlessness is that feeling of, of ants kind of crawling all over, I've got to get up. And f- for most of us, most of the time, it's more mental. Kind of driven. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to try that um, four-part meditation for the last ten minutes? Um, if it feels like it's you know too busy for you, then just, just do whatever you normally do. Just because I suggest it doesn't mean it's going to necessarily be uh, the right practice for you. Take a moment as you settle in to the meditation experience to just let yourself again arrive into the posture and arrive into the moment. Tune into your experience in the body. What's happening now within your body? What are the strongest sensations? Do you feel any points of contact, either the feet touching each other or the floor, the buttocks touching the chair or the cushion, the hands touching each other or the thighs? Do you feel the lips touching each other as they rest closed? And just take a few deep breaths. Breathing in and releasing any tension, any concerns on the exhale. And then allow the breath to be natural, uncontrolled. And notice the quality of mind. Notice the quality of energy that's available to you. Does the mind feel balanced and at ease? Does it feel sluggish or agitated? Just notice initially where you start out. And then direct your attention to the sensations of breathing, simply using the in and the out or the rising and falling as you normally do in your practice. Really feel the sensations of this breath. 
let go of any thoughts of what might be in the next moments in the future. Let go of any concerns of what has gone before. (coughs) And simply be present with the sensations of breathing. Using the mental labeling as a whisper in the mind, aiming the attention towards the breath. And notice your energy. Is it balanced and mindful? Or is there a tendency towards the slothful side or a tendency towards the restless side? Just notice. Be aware of that experience and continue to feel the sensations of breath. Now using the same rhythm as you use for the natural breath, note the in and the out, and then open the awareness with the note hearing, and then touching, in, out. Hearing. Touching. So your attention moves between these four objects in a rhythmic and clear way. May all beings everywhere be free from pain and confusion. May all beings everywhere realize the natural radiance of mind. May we live in peace together and realize our freedom.